0: about eight years old my parents bought me an unfinished desk creamy hued and fresh smelling and together we finished it sanding it smooth and then carefully coating it with a pungent varnish that darkened it to a deep rich brown that desk is still in that room where my own kids sometimes spend the night and it's still smooth. It took a lot of sandpaper to get that way. Sandpaper is useful because it is abrasive. That's its job to be rubbed against something until that something is transformed. Similarly, a sandpaper person is the individual we can't avoid. A relative, coworker, member of a friendship group, maybe a neighbor, whose presence annoys us, rubs us raw. I suspect each of us could name at least one person who for whatever or no reason bothers us. That's not an invitation to name that person out loud. (laughs) Just think about who it might be who you have an intrinsic resistance to. Before ministry was on my horizon, I was a medical assistant at a nonprofit family planning clinic in Washington state. One of my coworkers had very low boundaries. She was always sticking her nose into other people's business, inciting the kind of gossip that spirals into drama. Once, and this is while she was on the clock during open clinic hours, She used one of our precious phone lines to call the number on her hair dye box and ask whoever was unfortunate enough to answer whether the color she had selected would help her get a man. I think we can agree that's kind of annoying. (laughs) On the other hand, when our appointments backed up and I had to leave for a college class. And other coworkers had daycare pickup. This annoying coworker always cheerfully stayed late. She wasn't bad, she just rubbed me the wrong way like sandpaper. There is a difference between sandpaper people and those who are downright toxic. It's an important distinction. Toxic people are dangerous psychically and sometimes physically, they must be avoided even at high cost. But what about the people who are simply irritating? No more and no less. After all, none of us are perfect. As I say to my four kids when they have inevitable sibling spats, you too are sometimes annoying, my dear. And I always readily admit that this applies to me too. I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and I don't pretend to be. Sandpaper people are part of life after all, and so what to do when we encounter one? It's tempting to write them off as a mysterious cosmic punishment that must be endured. I woke up with allergies, especially present with me today, so thank you for your patience. <clears throat> I'm a little scratchy throated. After all, we can't very well run screaming every time a particular coworker pulls into the parking lot or that certain relative texts about the party. One way we can learn to live with them is by identifying them as opportunities for spiritual growth. As much as they rile and rough us up, maybe they can smooth us out as well. My sandpaper coworker gifted me a teaching. One day she showed me that wrapping and arranging the medical instruments in a particular way meant I could fit more in the autoclave. Sterilizing more equipment at once meant running the machine less often, thus saving environmental resources and a chunk of time over and over throughout the day. Is a practical tip a spiritual lesson? I would argue yes, yet the undoubtedly spiritual lesson I got from her is simply that I can learn from people I might not like. describes the tibetan concept of shenpa as the hook that triggers our habitual tendency to close down and feel spiteful or annoyed she says that getting unhooked begins by recognizing that moment of unease so we can learn to relax in that moment shenpa is usually involuntary she says And it gets right to the root of why we suffer. Someone looks at us a certain way, or we hear a certain song, we smell a certain smell, we walk into a certain room and boom, we're hooked. We're crawling out of our skin with disgust or irritation or that feeling of superiority. I think this is what was happening to me with my former coworker. Recognizing Shenpa is a formal exercise at Gampo Alley. That's Children's Buddhist Monastery in Nova Scotia. She reports, we discovered that some of us could feel it, could feel Shenpa, even when a particular person simply sat down next to us at the dining table. This is her take on what's happening. Shenpa thrives on the underlying insecurity of living in a world that is always changing. We could also call Shenpa the urge, the urge to smoke that cigarette, to have another drink, to indulge our addiction, whatever it is. Those with strong addictions know that working with habitual patterns begins with the willingness to fully acknowledge our urge, and then the willingness not to act on it. She writes, if we can see Shenpa just as we're starting to close down, when we feel the tightening, then there's the possibility of catching the urge to do the habitual thing and not doing it. To support this process, Chodron strongly recommends a meditation practice. There are other steps she suggests as well. Does someone bother you? Maybe that person who came to mind earlier. Stay with the unease, the tightening, the itch of Shenpa. Train in sitting still with the desire to scratch. This is how we learn to stop the chain reaction of habitual patterns that otherwise will rule our lives. If we're willing to practice this over time, prajna begins to kick in. Prajna means clear seeing. It's our innate intelligence, our our wisdom. Focus on prajna develops A big picture perspective, so we can see the whole chain reaction clearly as we practice this wisdom becomes stronger than shenpa. And our sandpaper people lose their power, we might not like them, you don't have to like everyone, but they will no longer provoke such vehemence. The earlier we catch it, teaches children, the easier Shenpa is to work with, but even catching it when we're already all worked up is good. Sometimes we have to go through the whole cycle, even though we see what we're doing. The urge is so strong, the hook so sharp, the habitual pattern so sticky That there are times when we can't do anything about it, but there is still always something we can do after the fact she reassures us. We can rerun the story, maybe we start with remembering the all worked up feeling and get in touch with that we look clearly at the shenpa in retrospect, this is very helpful. If I could re-encounter my sandpaper coworker now, maybe my thoughts toward her would be gentler because I've had time to reflect on our encounters. And maybe the workplace would be calmer for all of us. At the very least, I might be more grounded and less snippy. It's also helpful to see shenpa arising in little ways where the hook is not so sharp. Maybe your sandpaper person is a relative it's a lot to tackle an old deep cycle a realistic goal could be to simply notice in retrospect in retrospect that you got stuck in that loop developing prajna that's clear seeing might prepare you to one day reflect that the reason your neighbor annoys you could be their resemblance and habit or characteristic to the relative with whom you struggle. Start there. What else could you learn? Build up to tackling that more ingrained relationship. The simple act of noticing thoughts can be tremendously liberating when someone is getting on my last nerve. Staying present with hard feeling is difficult. I didn't grow up knowing how to do this. In this culture, most of us don't. It's like finishing a desk. It's a skill to be cultivated. But if you can get the hang of it, it can be magic. It can keep you from suddenly realizing you're seething with irritation, abandoned with the worst version of yourself, unsure how you got there or how to get back on track stabilizing means turning toward our sandpaper people with curiosity such a posture of openness can reveal that after all everybody has a heartache an important reminder from our reading by joe harjo the renowned muscogee or creek nation poet My friend Cassie gave me permission to share her powerful experience of realizing that everybody has a heartache. Growing up her family befriended a difficult woman. At holidays, it seemed like she would come just to criticize and suck the energy out of the room. Years passed and Cassie grew up and settled states away. When Cassie was seven months pregnant this family friend announced her intention to visit. It wasn't exactly welcome news, but Cassie felt she couldn't refuse. She just didn't have the heart to do that. And so five days after she gave birth, this friend arrived. When this friend didn't get what she wanted, she got mad. Cassie described her mood, this is very evocative, as a stinky mist. She expected a lot of one on one attention and was affronted that Cassie was preoccupied with nursing and sleeping and the big transition of having a human come out of her body and into her life. Yet, as the days of the visit wore by, Cassie saw that this person was suffering spiritually. She was isolated. Life had not gone as she desired. She didn't have healthy ways to fix her loneliness. All her stories betrayed that manipulation was her only mode of being in relationship with those from whom she desperately sought affection and witness and validation. Cassie began to see that everybody has a heartache. She even ended up being grateful that she had more than a single holiday meal mediated by others to spend with this family friend. It forced Cassie to be more present with the discomfort of this person's company. And that ultimately proved the key to her noticing what was happening on a deeper level. She started to see the complexity of this person in all her shortcomings. Yes. Yet she also glimpsed the tremendous disappointments that life had contained for this person. Cassie uncovered in herself a well of patience for her family friend, and humility, even awe, that her own life was not marked by similar suffering. Cassie is not Buddhist, but her story is about working with Shenpa, to reach prajna on an interpersonal level. These same concepts are available as we contend, not just with our personal relationships, but with larger social structures as well. Many of the systems that govern our lives, they aren't just irritating, they're downright toxic and abusive. Just staying spiritually open and curious that doesn't address the precipitous climb of grocery store prices, and corporate owner profits. By a conservative calculation, 25% of Oregonians are food insecure. That is immoral. A meditation practice is not a sufficient response. Yet, children's teaching offered two useful gifts, as we respond to systemic injustice. The first is relationality. Cultivating a Shenpa practice promotes relationship and solid relational networks are arguably one of the most important practical assets we have in a broken world marked by random and systemically caused suffering. We need our people can't put it more simply than that. Um, Two second resource analysis. The calm wisdom of Prajna means that we are grounded enough to experience interpersonal dynamics and also understand what might be happening at the core. It takes a certain skill to grok a situation like Figuring out that my coworkers' attention seeking chaos rattled me because I was nervous about my first full time professional job. That kind of insight and discovering it can scale up. Take an example from the headlines like the increasing attacks on the human rights of gender diverse people and families. These are coming at us through legal, social, and other channels. Lately, as news of these terrible anti-trans bathroom bills get smeared across our screens, progressives respond by promoting these really thoughtful, interesting personal case studies about the coming out of a non-binary child, or an adult who's negotiating life as a genderqueer person. And these stories are valuable, they're beautiful, they sustain us. They're crucial, they do change minds we need to keep telling and listening to them. And if we apply our practices of calm, clarity and curiosity, an even bigger picture emerges. Under the individual narratives is the core structural reality that some bodies, especially bodies that aren't considered normative enough, too gender-expansive, too ambiguous, to both or neither, when it comes to gender or other factors, or maybe not white or able-bodied or cis or wealthy enough, so long list. Some bodies are being denied care and autonomy and safety. This wider perspective, then might crystallize us towards collective strategy and action, with a bigger goal of bodily freedom for all, even though the more specific goal of, say, blocking a ballot measure or raising awareness also matter. Never doubt that spiritual grounding is a politically liberatory act, even, and I would say especially, when there's friction. Sandpaper's abrasive quality is designed to generate friction. Locating that point, finding the emotional resistance is important because that abrasive rub is where the learning can happen. It's where we encounter shenpa, our, our hooks, our triggers, or urges. And also hopefully eventually the clear sight of Prajna. The friction is how my desk got sanded all those years ago. It's where I learned from a difficult coworker and where Cassie discovered that everybody has a heartache. The sandpaper people in our lives may rub us raw, but if we can greet the resistance as a teacher, then we can hope to be rubbed smooth. May it be so. <laughs>